What's up, everybody? I'm Scott Melker, and this is the Wolf of All Streets podcast, where two times every week I talk to your favorite personalities from the worlds of Bitcoin, finance, music, trading, sport, art, politics, basically anyone with a good story to tell. Now, we've seen cryptocurrency talk about Web3. We've seen all the innovation happening in this space. And one of the most exciting use cases is fixing the data storage problem that has seemingly existed for a very long time, especially because all of that data is largely stored on centralized servers and by centralized authorities. Now, today's guest, Sam Williams, the CEO of Arweave, and they are really, really breaking ground in how we can completely change that. And not only that, it's having a major, major impact on what's happening in Ukraine at the moment. So it's hyper relevant right now. Sam, thank you so much. I can't wait to discuss this. Thank you for taking the time. Thanks so much for having me on. So we should probably get the background on what Arweave is and what problem it's solving. So can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, put simply, Arweave is a permanent information storage system. It's the first one that has existed in history, we think. The way it works is we've scaled a blockchain so you can fit very large amounts of data inside the chain itself and then paired that with an endowment. And essentially, when you put a piece of data into Arweave, you put like a reasonable amount of capital up front uh, to pay for 200 years of storage. And then as the cost of storage declines over time, you, you generate essentially interest in the form of storage purchasing power. And we just use that to pay for the storage. And that means that you, you're essentially from the single payment, your interest is covering the payment of storage essentially perpetually. Um, yeah, so, so a blockchain is the perfect way to do this because it is a ledger that no single person controls. And the consequence when you put all of this stuff together is that you have a ledger of history which is out of the hands of any dictator to change over time or any individual, frankly, to come along and to try and put their thumb on the scale of how people see the past. And, and we think this is so important because as George Orwell put it in, in 1984, uh, he who controls the present controls the past. And he who controls the past controls the future. So by changing the way people, and you see this with dictatorships and authoritarian regimes in general all the time, by changing the way people think about the past, you, you change the, the, the actions that they take in the, in the future um, and the way that the world works. And so, you know, we, we think it's a fundamental necessity to put archives out of the control of individuals. Essentially, we built the infrastructure to do that. Sort of the Churchill statement history is written by the victors right, right. we never yeah. get an accurate appraisal of history because whoever wins gets to tell you what happened yeah and, and history is written by the victors on day one you know or after victory day whenever that is um but then it's rewritten <laughs> endlessly by people that want to encourage their population to support whatever it is that's the next initiative and we, we saw this in russia with ukraine right like the the line that the uh President Putin is, is pushing, it's essentially, Ukraine was never a state, da, 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 da. It's, it's all rewriting history as a pretext for action in the future. But we wanna make sure that all of the information about the, the present crisis, um, and frankly, all of the other historical events around the world are stored in such a fashion that no single person can come along and change it later. Just in the same way that in, in Bitcoin, nobody can come and alter the ledger and say, actually, I have all the money. It's exactly the same technique, just applied to massive amounts of data. I, I think it's incredible, but it obviously begs the question, it's not only one single person that often comes in and rewrites history, right? And we've seen the proliferation of fake news across social media for years now having an effect on international relations, on elections, things like that. What prevents people from storing fake news on our way? Absolutely nothing. And I think that's absolutely right. Here's why. If you look back to the last, I'd say, major theater war of this scale, it's probably Iraq 2003. Why did we go into Iraq in 2003? Well, the stated reason was weapons of mass destruction. How many of those stories do we now actually believe? Okay, let's go back to the, the last major theater war before that, it was Vietnam. Why did we go into Vietnam, the Gulf of Tonkin incident? Did it actually happen? Well, what we know for sure is it wasn't, it didn't happen as reported in the newspapers at the time. That much is clear. What actually happens is a little bit murky. 1939, uh, Germany invades Poland. What does the New York Times write in the, in the paper the next day? They say that, uh, they essentially write the, the Nazi propaganda line, which was that 
Polish forces took over a um, German, I think it was a radio outlet. I'm going to put I believe it was. But yeah, right. Yeah. False pretense created exactly. over and over again. And, and so what we've got to understand is that fundamentally false pretexts are unfortunately a part of history. And particularly when it comes to instigation of wars, half the time, don't quote me on that, but a large proportion of the time, that is why we do it in the first place. And so if we didn't archive that record of history, that this, this misinformation was out there, you look back and you say, why did we go into Iraq in 2003? Doesn't make any sense. But you have to, you have to store this stuff because it, is the information that the leaders and the populace had on hand at the time and if affected the way that they thought about things. So we try and make, are we the neutral ledger of all of the information that people have when they're assessing the situation in the moment? And then we allow historians over time to come back and look at that and say, well, was that actually true? And, you know, it's, it's, it's pessimistic in some sense because, of course, you can't go back and say, oh, that wasn't true, please change history. It doesn't work like that. But we can at least get a clear picture of it. And then hopefully, you know, maybe we can be more aware of misinformation in all the forms it comes in. Um, and perhaps in the case of weapons mass destruction in Iraq, you know, maybe that was just mischaracterization or, or we just jumped to the wrong conclusion. Or, you know, so a dozen different opinions you can put on that, but one way or another, it wasn't true, right? Um, or it wasn't true to the extent that it was portrayed. So maybe if we, if we have this sort of accurate ledger of history that doesn't get rewritten all the time, we, we can have a stronger appreciation for the importance of being careful about you know, what the information that we trust is. And interestingly, something I've never really thought about, but putting the fake news on the ledger is actually a very part, important part of the current historical context for what's happening. So the fake news itself, even though it's not true, when you look back, is a very good sample of what was actually happening today. Fake news is a huge part of the world right now. <laughs> so even eliminating the fake news would never give you an accurate appraisal of what it was like to live in 2022. That is precisely correct. I mean, it, it's been really interesting to see around this Ukraine stuff. Obviously, we've spoken to you know, lots of reports about it, and always this uh, this misinformation question comes up. But I see it from essentially the opposite point of view. When we first made Arweave, which to get into that, you know, the, the world was, I would say, more or less destabilizing back in late 2016, that sort of time. And we, I was doing a PhD, and I, I, I took some time when I should have been building this operating system um, and my computer science studies. Uh, instead, I, instead, I looked at the history of authoritarianism around the world and how that actually developed. And, and we saw that one of the things that happens is this modification of records of the past, or at least modification of the perception of the past. And part of that is typically removing access to old records. Um, and we thought, well, okay, maybe the one small thing that we can throw into this colossal mix that is happening, that we could actually, like, you know, we could actually do, we have the skills to, to address is, well, let's just make it so that people can't edit records in the past. That seems like a good idea. And so, so we, we started doing that. And when it got into production a year later, um, we, the first things that we wanted to archive in, into it were fake news deliberately. And, and so the example of this was, and this was the first major, you could say, kind of success in some form for the network. Obviously, it was a horrific historical event, but from the point of view of recording history, it was a, this is what we set out to do, and it worked. Um, someone from the community in, I think it was December 2018, yeah, December 2018, uh, recorded the first English language Russian propaganda outlet piece about what was called the Kerch Street incident. Essentially what happened it was um, a bunch of Russian uh, sailors uh, captured a Ukrainian vessel in the uh, Sea of Azov. I'm sorry, I should these names. Um, <laughs> I do that every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but they, they captured this vessel. Okay, and this was quite a, a serious international incident at the time. And they managed to get the first uh, English language piece from a Russian propaganda outlet, and they stored it. And then on reflection, they noticed, wait, this is really pro-Ukrainian. And it was only online for 14 minutes. And then whoever was that ran Sputnik at the time 
memory holding. They said, no, no, don't put that out into the information space. And then they replaced it with a much more pro-Russian um, article. And so by recording what it is that governments want people to believe, they actually get quite an important like, um, view on history, if you will, regardless of whether that's true or not. That's a whole different thing, but to at least be able to assert with authority, well, at this particular point in time, the government of Russia, their, their outlets, would you say, are saying this line. And then if they change it later, well, we can detect that change and say, well, look, you're not being internally coherent. What happened in the meantime? So this got picked up by and, and used in a, in a pretty major you know, piece for a, a British newspaper, a, I would say high circulation British newspaper, and that was the first time the network was used to sort of in practice like that. And ever since then, it's just been growing and growing. So the idea then is, I mean, you're focused on capturing as much information as possible and being able to store it indefinitely and let the oracles and historians sort it out in the future. Yeah, I think determining truth is like a profoundly difficult thing that frankly, nobody knows how to do. Like, I think arguably the way that humans have evolved over hundreds of millions of years life has evolved around hundreds of millions of years is to address the fundamental question of how do we work out what truth is and we do that in groups and um even then we get it wrong all the time see weapons of mass destruction in iraq in 2003 which is completely false um or at least there's only a tiny nugget of truth in it um, but we all believed it at the time or at least there was a very high perception of its truthiness um so that that isn't Part of the scope of the system that we are building directly there are people building stuff on top of our beef which is like well can we use markets to sort of if you will do like a, a perpetual future on the truth of a statement something like that to reward people for saying things that are true lots of interesting experimentation on the predictive markets yeah, right. yeah essentially um yeah but you're you're just predicting well will people in the future believe this thing is true so it's an interesting spin on on prediction markets um, there's, there's lots going on in that area, but at the base layer, we just want to make sure that the data isn't changed over time and can't be removed from the data set and all people have access to it to assess it at different points in history. Right. So I guess then it begs the question, what are the limits of the existing systems, right? And what are the problems with having centralized data systems? Because I mean, there are systems that can store a whole lot of data, right? I mean, that exists. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the remarkable thing is that archives, which is essentially what RV is, RV is like a sort of archive of steroids in some sense, uh, they haven't changed in like a thousand years, which is really quite profound. Like there's no real disruption as these things have, have aged. They just, they run in the same way and, they, and they're all vulnerable to the same problem, which is a centralized point of failure, right? So there is a place that if fire, flood, or the government come and destroy the data, it is gone. That is the end of it. Are we like totally different? It says, well, why don't we, for a start, let's not work as a, as a charity. Let's be a business, a decentralized business that anyone can take part in, in the model of. Um, so we don't have to rely on donations. That removes one big area for corruption, right? Like who pays the donations to store the data gets a good say in what data is stored. You're trying to sell, store something for 500 years. Okay, well then what's the likelihood in the meantime, some donor comes along this like serious investor, not investor, but serious backer of this project and says, actually, like, this information, they're going to say something like, isn't that useful, right? And then, oh, there you go, it's gone. Um, so that's, uh, that's one of the things you can get rid of. But fundamentally, you, you store the data in Arbif and it is replicated around the world in like hundreds, if not thousands of places. Impossible to remove, impervious to fire, flood, nuclear war, uh, you know, almost all doomsday scenarios. It was deep irony when the pandemic came along, but I hadn't thought so much about that, that um, failure mode, if you will. That's actually the one that, that scares me the most in the long term of the archive, because people have to come along and, um, and manage the infrastructure of the internet. And if they stop doing that, because there's a pandemic that's so extreme, fortunately, of course, while horrific, COVID-19 was not Ebola. Um, people turned up every day to, to manage the wires that keep the internet running. Uh, but, you know, if they stop doing that, then that, might, that actually could be a potential problem for the network. Um, but, you know, we've built sort of, what do you say, 
doomsday scenario planning situations for even that. But my point is more general that, yeah, this, this radically increases the veracity of archives on, on so many different levels. Is it infinite? Is there any end to the amount of data that you can store? Um, at a protocol level, the, the maximum data stored inside a transaction is two to the power 256 bytes. So that's enormous. Obviously there needs to be hard drives to back it and that's why there are the incentives in the system. Um, the cool things about the incentives are that if the cost of storage declines at a rate above 0.5% per year, then at the end of any given year, you end up with more storage purchasing power than you had at the start. And so if you look at the, the history of, of uh, data storage prices, you see that the normal decline rate is about 30%, 30%. So we've got like a 60x safety margin there. Um, and obviously for every year that passes and you don't use that full, um, or where there's an excess on top of that 0.5%, you just store that for the future. So right now, there's tokens in the endowment to pay for storage of the data for around a thousand years. So it's, it's pretty, it's pretty robust. <laughs> but of course, at some point, like, you know, hundreds or thousands of years from now, someone comes along with a, a even better protocol for storing data permanently. And that's great. And then likely what will happen is someone just puts value inside that archive in the same way that, you know, anthologies of poems People becomes like, a block. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so you find this this pattern all the time that like the archives get nested inside each other as things go through history. So so I would say that like successfully Arweave project is that the data set is around until after the last human-like thing that might be interested in reading that data is is um, is is here on Earth or who knows wherever. Will be based. So is that data, is the data, what you're storing primarily user generated or is it partially user generated, but is it also partially like just consuming everything that's on the internet? How, no. how do you actually, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so what happens is it's a neutral thing. Anyone can come along and store any piece of data, uh, given that they're willing to pay into the endowment and the endowment, like you'd imagine that this is expensive. The thing is the storage is so cheap that like actually it's less than a cent a megabyte. So if you want to store a web page or something like that, it's like, a cent or two. Um, yeah, which is really nice because it, it means that the addressable amount of data is huge because there's so much data that it's worth storing at that price uh, permanently. Yeah, so, so people come along, they like in the case of Ukraine, where we've now stored as a community 17 million records, I think, today, maybe even 18 now, um, from, the, from the conflict, which is just an enormous archive. And it's, and it's, one of the strange things about the, the Ukraine crisis is that, um, and it speaks to some extent to the horror of the whole thing, this is a, it's a highly developed state where one could not previously have imagined that these things would happen, and yet here we are. Um, but one of the effects of that is that the there are citizens generating signals about this war that they are posting on social media all the time. And whereas previously, I, I saw someone describe this eloquently as the TikTok war. So back in 2003 in, in Iraq, you got your information from three different sources. You got it from the Iraqi government, you got it from the US government, and you got it from journalists that were embedded with the US military, which uh, were publishing only at the, only at the whim of the US government. Those were how you heard about the war. You didn't hear about anything that those three different sources didn't want you to hear about. Whereas in Ukraine, it's completely different. People just saw a photo earlier from a guy called, um, I forget his name, but it's just like a guy that went for a walk in a forest and found a uh, uh, abandoned uh, surface to wear missile, uh, like the mobile yeah. system. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just like, wow, that's, that's crazy, but he took a selfie of himself with this thing and it's got geolocation data. So it's like, okay, well, now we have this record of history, which says that at this particular place, at this particular time, and it's, it's timestamped just like a transaction of blockchain, like Bitcoin can never be changed. It's really robust. At this particular point in time, um, this guy discovered uh, this, this abandoned vehicle and that tells us something about the battle that happened in the associated area. 
And we, we saw it, if you will, firsthand. And historians in the future will be able to see all that data firsthand. Another example, the, um, you know, in the history books, people write about, well, before World War II broke out, there were troop, um, you know, uh, concentrations on the border with Poland or whatever it happens to be. It's like, okay, well, what did, how did that happen? What were the concentrations like? Um, we don't really know because it's been summarized so many times in, over, over the course of history. And now we're just reading like the summary of the summary of the summary of the original. And maybe we've got like one or two little fragments from the time that's nothing like what we have today. Today we have recordings that are verified. Satellite imagery. <laughs> satellite imagery, like people just in the cars, they stop the car next to a train track and they're like, oh, that train heading towards the, the border with Ukraine has a massive number of tanks on it. They record it, it goes on the internet, it gets sucked up under our weave, and then in the future, historians can look back and say, on this particular date, on this particular time, a battalion of this size moved into this particular position. And this is just like a level of fidelity of the archive, and, and I would hope a level of understanding of the events that come as a result of that in the future that just hasn't existed previously. It's fair, it's a whole different animal. I, I talk about this all the time when it comes to sort of, well, information overload or what's accessible to us now that wasn't. I'm 45 years old. I've, I vividly remember the 1990 Gulf War, right? When right. Uh, Iraq invaded Kuwait and, uh, and we got our news once a day from Dan yeah. Rather or Peter yeah. Jennings, right? You got your yeah. one hour fix on what was happening, but you didn't have the internet to see what was going on 24 seven. Now, if that news was accurate, some would maybe say that was a superior way, right? You weren't trying to consume it 24-7, you weren't. But as you said, that was news funneled down through multiple sources for a specific reason. That's all you had. All your specific reason is precisely the point here. Yeah. Well, and I think the truth of the matter is, and you see this happening in the background of, of this whole crisis in Ukraine, the the propaganda apparatus of each of the countries is, is getting barred from the other countries. Like now it's very hard to access RT yeah. in the West. And it's also very hard to access Voice of America or BBC inside Russia. And so you see this bifurcation happening. Um, my, my personal opinion is that fog of war is so strong that the likelihood that we get any, um, that, that we get an understanding of the present situation that will be the, the dominant understanding of the situation 200 years from now today is very very low I, I think that social media frankly makes it a lot better but nonetheless i think that our understanding will shift over time as we as we have more time to reflect and hopefully look at the archives that are being built like study the the signals from history i mean they're coming in at a rate of like you know 17 million things just stored in our in the last two weeks um, that, but that's going to take a long time to, to properly comprehend. Well, I, I was just going to say, if it's, if it's 20, let's call it 2050, you know, yeah. and I'm a researcher and I'm looking back and I want to know what happened in the Russia-Ukraine conflict and I access the archive and are we, how do I even search that and start to make sense of it? Because now there's millions and millions of pieces of information for me to sort. I'm assuming I have some sort of like superior AI that does it for me or, or I'm a robot by 2050 anyways, but you know, <laughs> right. in my 2022 mind, how do I access and use that data? Well, I think you're absolutely right. Essentially it's AI assisted almost certainly. And, th and that is essentially Google search, right? Like there's this really interesting thing that's happening that is AI. <laughs> right. That is AI. Um, it, it's becoming more like the web. The web started as this concrete set of uh, relational knowledge, basically. Right. So you'd have a piece of knowledge on a web page and it might link out to other pieces of knowledge. That was basically the idea. They called it a distributed knowledge graph back then. Um, <laughs> over time, it's, it's turned more into this sort of what we would call like an open data lake. And now we have machines to help us access the right pieces of that data lake over time. And more of it, like this is happening at an increasing rate. You see the Google, well, they're just pulling out the information that you would want to see from the page into the Google search results itself. They have like these little fact boxes. They pull out like the definitions of stuff from Wikipedia. They even have like frequently asked questions that they've synthesized from the data. And I think that's just going to get more and more extreme. So 
one of the things that we expect to see from Arweave at that point in like 2050 is it's just a big open data lake that never forgets. And then you have systems to help you explore it more or less. I would, I would really hope and I'm excited to see that in the Arweave ecosystem, there are already people starting to address this. Two projects called A-Search and uh, Open Index Protocol, um, where they're basically looking at how do we build search engines that are provably running a piece of code which is open source because I, I'm, I'm like 95 percent sure 85 percent sure uh, that five years from now the big thing is not going to be censorship on the web it's going to be um, there's no good term for it even yet but basically the manipulation extracting the truth and extracting the truth yeah. well it's it, it, it i think it's what truth is precisely the question, right? And, and right now, Google is totally, totally like black box. It, it recommends things from this open data lake to you. You have no idea how it got to that conclusion. You have no idea what bias is putting into it. Um, and we, we see this, you know, China is unfortunately the, uh, you say, they're, they're leading the way in a negative sense on this. Um, on Weibo, Back at the beginning of the coronavirus, we saw that there was this huge outcry for freedom of speech, which was amazing. Very, very, very rare to happen in China, it's on social media. Um, so people in our community like immediately started trying to build archives to extract all of those conversations and store them before they were censored um, and store them in an anonymized way so the person who stored it isn't, isn't a risk, but we can still get like accurate data about it. And um, what they, what they found after they built this archive, because of course that only lasted for like three days, they went back and they're like, well, how do I detect that something has been censored? And so they saw, well, okay, I can go back to the post. Is the post available? No, it's 404, there we go, it's censored. Okay, interesting. Yeah. The second thing that you can do is, well, just search for the exact text of that post. And what do you know? The ones that are censored, like 2%, the ones that just didn't show up in search results, they've been sort of, there's no word for this, but it's like shadow banning on an individual post basis. That was like 60% it, of, the, of the whole data set. And then they built a tool on top of this called um, Wayblocked, which was like, okay, well, let's just highlight all of that data. For it. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, Very transparent, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, tell people transparently what you're doing, and I think that's the that's the right way to act in the world. <laughs> and in this case, it was, well, let's just make a website that highlights everything the Chinese government tries to, <laughs> tries to censor. And um, that was a really interesting, um, you say, episode. It ended up, and of course, it's a permaweb app, so an application that lives on top of this archive. Because this is where things get a bit weird and to some extent more interesting even. Um, what does the archive really do? Well, it really puts data outside of the control of any individual. And data, of course, can be applications itself. And the network is queryable, like it works like a database. So you can build full web applications on top of the system. They just run forever and they don't have any owner. And so they built this, this web application that just you know, highlighted all of the stuff that was censored in China. And it's available for many, many nodes in the Arweave network in a properly decentralized and distributed way. Um, which are very, very hard to block. <laughs> and so now you have this web application that's openly available to people in the Chinese mainland, very, very difficult to block, and it's highlighting only the stuff that the Chinese government is censoring, kind of like the Streisand effect machine. Um, yeah. yeah. I love that. Well, what about, so uh, what about the interplay here with our personal data? I mean, I think right. that the one of the biggest, certainly, narratives at the moment when we talk about big tech and talk about Google, I mean, Google obviously is showing you results because they know you better than you know yourself, right? Based on all yes. the data they've collected. Right. Certainly Facebook, the same way. Does all of this private data that we wouldn't necessarily want shared until the end of time <laughs> end right. up on our weave as well as part of sort of this historical record? Yeah, so there's, there's ways of managing this in the system. Essentially, all of the miners in the network can see the data that is being stored. There is no, there is no encryption of rest which is important because that also makes them responsible for the data that they store. So you as a user can come along and say, hey, please kindly remove my data. And then, yes, it's up to the miner to decide whether they're going to do that or not. But if they are, for example, in the EU, where there's GDPR, or in um, you know, an area, yeah, an economic area that is GDPR 
would you say, exposed, then they have to, by law, remove your data. Um, and I would, I would expect that the army of miners don't really care about storing people's personal data. That's not the point. So they right. would be happy to remove it. They're there for storing history in some sense, and also uncensorable um, web applications, which is a whole... Yeah, I mean, it, it, it plays on this component, which is, well, what happens when you make a piece of data um, permanent and not controlled by any single party? Well, you can have web applications that run inside the system that have no centralized controller. We think that's just like a revolutionary change in the, in the architecture of the web. Because it used to be, like, if you wanted to use a web service one way or another, um, you had to trust the party that built it, the developer. So your relationship is, like the example I always give with Gmail, right? Like, you got your Gmail address like 15 years ago at this point, and you signed on, you said, yes, Google, I shall basically follow on with whatever privacy policy you use in the future. The application can change at will, um, and I can't do anything about it. I sign, tick, tick the box, let's go. <laughs> And yeah, as if anyone's ever read that privacy policy in the history right. of time. Right, of course. Right. Um, and then you had no idea that they were going to sell access to your data, put intrusive adverts on it over time. That was just not part of the not part of the your comprehension of the deal you were making. But with a Palmer Web app, an application stored inside our we running inside the system, querying the network as a database, um, you, you get totally different realities. Like you you have an application that the developer can issue a new copy of, but they can't force you to use it. So if you like, you know, Gmail 2008 version, no one can force you to upgrade. So the power relationship between you and the developer is different. If you want to use Twitter and you want to build up like a following, that takes time. That is a real investment of your, your, um, yeah, your scarce attention. And it can be taken away from you at any time when Twitter, the company decides that what you are saying platform, is- sure. Yeah, right. Well, we can build applications where that can't happen either, but actually your access to the data, sorry, to the application, to the platform is maintained with a guarantee. And, and the, the, the only caveat to that is a simple part that says someone in the, net, in the network and in the world must be willing to store it. So if it is illegal globally, then it won't be stored. Um, uh, or if it's you know, personally identifiable information or something like that that you want to remove later, then probably that won't be stored either because people just don't want to store it. But there's that, that fundamental guarantees or integrity guarantees that, that are offered by the system that you really can't get anywhere else on the web. That's something we're super excited about. So you talked about a few of the applications that are being built upon it, which were primarily around search. But while well, the streams just... or even what's happening now, what else can you build once you have this archive and it's decentralized and people want to access it because it seems like once the wheels get turning, it's probably pretty endless. Right. Exactly. I mean, you can take any web two company or service and you can make that service again without the company. And depending on the, what industry it's in that, that is worth slightly more or slightly less, but it is pretty objectively a step up for the user to have those guarantees. The platform won't get worse. Um, but to have a guarantee that you can't just get arbitrarily removed from it. Uh, outside of, would you say, the, the rules of engagement that are embedded in the code itself. That, those, are, those are almost universally beneficial properties. Um, they, there's areas where they matter more or matter less. I'd say like email. So there's a system called Permamail, for example, which does exactly this. It's, it's email on top of Arweave, um, but no one can deplatform you and no one can add intrusive adverts. There are lots of user interfaces to it that don't sell access to your data. Well, great. They're never going to sell access to your data. They can't. That's pretty cool. Um, and things like, yeah, social media is a big one. Like I think that Twitter has basically become a global public square, or at least was, but because they act as an obviously American company that is not neutral, they're, they're losing that. And so there's this opportunity to build a, a real public you know, global square, which um, doesn't, where your rights of access are maintained, are guaranteed, essentially. I think that's super, super powerful. And I, I certainly feel, and I know that lots of others do, that once you've invested the time to, to reach an audience there, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing because like Elon Musk does it, for example. Elon Musk's time is extraordinarily valuable, right? But he's invested that time in, in building a way to speak to people on Twitter. Well, if Twitter comes along and just says, sorry, time's up, 
get lost or you know <laughs> your billions of dollars measure. for him that's literally billions that's literally and billions, billions of dollars of, of if you quantify his time in dollars certainly right how much does he so, make a second <laughs> yeah so sum that up over all of the users and multiply it also by the risk because it doesn't matter about the people that are of course, it matters about the people that are deplatformed, but it also matters about the people that are worried they will be deplatformed because there's a cost to that as well. In the same way, the Bitcoin, right? We love Bitcoin because there's not going to be more than 21 million tokens. And who knows, there might be a fiat system where they just stop printing tokens, like uh, the Swiss, I was going to say token, the Swiss currency. They don't print so much. They're just but... tokens anyways. <laughs> right, right, token. <laughs> one day, one day they will be, so it's fine. One day, yeah, not too long in the future, I think. Um, but, you know, the, the Swiss token, they don't print so much of, but there is a cost to the risk that in the future they might print more of it. So if you sum that up for a social network, we're talking about extraordinary amounts of money. But I'll give you just, you just get rid of that and say, okay, well, you are a sovereign person in this network. You can't be denied access outside of the rules of the game that you agree to play at the beginning. And if someone comes up with a new version of the game, you can play it if you want. You're not forced to. So interesting. And so true, even anecdotally from personal experience, you know, I was a part of the Twitter hack when Kanye West and Bill Gates were <laughs> tweeting out, you know, uh, oh, send wow. me one Bitcoin and I'll send you two. My account was one of the ones that was compromised and obviously made me realize that I needed to build on other platforms, get people's email addresses, build a YouTube channel, mm -hmm. all of which, by the way, can individually still, you know, be deplatformed. Yeah. But you're right, the amount of time and effort spent making sure that I was safe from another Twitter takedown. Right. It's like a full-time job. Right. And I never exactly. really That's... thought about quantifying that in terms of my time or value, but yeah. it's, it's incredibly powerful when you, when you think about that. Yeah, and there's the value that doesn't accrue to the platform by people being afraid of this. You see this a lot in uh, the developer space, right? So you've got an API for your cool new service. Rewind 10 years, imagine that's Twitter. Um, Okay, people want to come along, they want to build, they see a, a niche where they can build a business. Okay, but maybe they don't do it because they know that actually you can just turn off access to that API arbitrarily and the business is over. All of that time you invested is gone. And so the value that would have accrued to that platform, now just, it's not even like there was a risk, it's just never got created in the first place. So if you provide developer level guarantees of, of you know, kind of integrity of rights, if you will, essentially, um, then, then you can also allow more value to be created inside the, the ecosystem you're building for whatever platform it is. And what do you think the future of decentralized social media looks like? Is it just, I, I've been saying, I don't know what it's going to look like, but I think that's going to be one of the major stories of the next year or two. I mean, that, that to me is the most obvious usage of decentralized technology is to decentralize social media. But what will that look like? Can we have something as robust as a Facebook, an Instagram, a Snapchat, a Twitter that is fully decentralized or are there limits to how that could be built? Well, the cool thing about are we just that as described at the beginning, it, it, the, the limit for even a single transaction put in the network is far beyond the amount of data that exists by some someone who's going to work this out in the while doing it, but it's going to be like many, many orders of magnitude, maybe even more atoms than there are in the universe, that kind of thing. Uh, so, so the answer is on the scalability side, no, from a protocol point, there, there are no limits. Um, I think on the infrastructure side to build this stuff, um, we've just about turned the corner on like, hey, actually anyone that can build JavaScript, CSS, HTML applications, they can build these applications in a fairly easy way without having to learn a lot of um, specialized stuff. That really only just happened two or three months ago. So at Arweave, we're, we're trying to sort of um, YOLO scale this. <laughs> we realized like now is the time. You got to, like, we're frankly, the whole- That's the crypto, that's the crypto way, man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, but, but I, I think we're late. Like, I think we, we needed social, decentralized social media to be growing, you know, experiencing the network effect of hyper growth uh, like a year ago. That, that's where we needed to be. We weren't um, too much, focus on the tokens, not enough building. Now is the moment. And so, so what we're doing is we're focusing on, well, how do we get the next thousand founders into the Arweave ecosystem in the next like 18 months, two years? And we figured, well, there's all these developers out there that are you know, basically junior level. Um, they can just about build web applications. 
they, they're looking for their first jobs in the world. Well, screw that. <laughs> Instead, we, if you just work your way through this funnel we've set up, which starts with like a hello world application on Arby's, followed by like building an MVP, uh, establishing some kind of uh, entity, whether that's you know, a DAO or a company, whatever it is, um, and then getting your first users and so on. We'll just progressively invest eventually $100,000 in any person that does this in a, in a reasonable way. Um, and it's open to anyone to start any time. Like, we really want to hyperscale this to, to all the people in the Web2 space, or they were just getting started in their careers, and bring them on board to do this. Um, oh, and if you are interested in that, sorry to plug, are we built? Go for it. Like, I, we're, we're I mean, there. I think that that, to that, that to me is one of... My favorite, and I think the most impactful parts of the crypto space in general is that most serious protocols, layer ones, whatever, have created these foundations, right, to, to fund development and building so that what you just described can happen. Forget college, you're talented. Yeah, I'm getting right. paid to build something yeah. that could literally make you a billionaire because it not only does yeah. it align like the incentives of the protocol, obviously, to mm -hmm. get more users and to scale, but it also aligns well with the incentives of the individual who just wants to support their family or get rich or whatever it is. That's always yeah. been the beauty of, of blockchain. I mean, Bitcoin's the same way, right? You wouldn't attack right, the right. network because you wouldn't be incentivized to do so. But it's just amazing to me how on blockchain, it seems like the incentives for the group and the individual seems to always align. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. I mean, on a personal level, I find that this is some of the most rewarding stuff that I, I get to spend time on. Like, I remember the first, back in 2017, we were just getting started. I, I had three months of my PhD left to go. And so I started thinking about, you know, what is it I could do next? And I, I realized there was this opportunity to build an archive inside of blockchain, basically, and to make that scale and make it, make it economically sustainable. Um, and, and I remember the first guy that gave us 5,000 5, bucks. <laughs> and I, I remember the emails with him and I, it's like a, it was a profound thing to be given that opportunity to, to quit what I was working on and just really go after this thing I, I was so passionate about. And now, you know, five years later, looking back, one of the coolest things, we get to forward that opportunity on to so many more people. That is amazing. And, um, and the cool thing about it is, you know, if you are in college or whatever, like you can just stop for a little while, try it out. Okay, it doesn't work. What have you lost? Yeah. And to be honest, like college applications, they love when people have, you know, um, entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial uh, ventures. Shows your, yeah, shows sure. stuff. Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, you're padding your padding your college application by uh, <laughs> right. programming, right? So, uh, so what's the worst? Really what's the worst that can happen? So, yeah, I, I feel there's there's profound meaning in that. And um, it's exciting, exciting time, for sure. So where do you see this in 10 years, right? I mean, with the, and because you're clearly an exponential thinker, right? You're speaking in numbers that, and I think that that's a rare talent and probably what separates the people who are extremely successful in blockchain from others is that they just have this ability to view that sort of exponential growth and, and hockey stick. I mean, you literally just said, uh, casually that you're talking about numbers like atoms in the universe, right? For how much data you can store. Most people I don't think can think that way. So if you gain exponential traction this year, I mean, do we have an equivalent internet to what we have now built on our weave 10 years from now? I mean, is that what we're talking about here? In theory, I'm not saying that will happen, but it's within the realm of non-zero chance. Yeah, so I've been tracking the growth of our weave against the growth of the early web. And we are way ahead of schedule. So that's pretty cool. I, I mean, I like the, uh, you know, think globally, act locally thing. So, so I can see we're on the right track to, to, to build something that is enormous. But, you know, that's, there's no point spending time thinking about that. <laughs> I was up to 4 a.m. last night trying to uh, help the team uh, tune the databases that run uh, one of the major Arweave gateways. And like that, that is my focus. I, I don't care about the long term will happen. Time, time has a way of elapsing with you, like you don't know. But what needs to be done, like today, is, is always my focus. And, and for example, we, we just launched the Arweave Build, Arweave.Build um, program this week. And so it was a hyper focus on like, how do we get it so the documentation is all in place so that a newbie to the network can come along and learn everything they need to know from the start in, an, in, an, in an, as easy a fashion as possible. Let's make sure that the, the 
infrastructure is of as high quality as possible so that it works nicely when they use it. This is what my focus is on every day. So. Are there any places that centralized systems are superior? Um, I think that the notions of centralized and decentralized uh, kind of misnomers, or at least the reason that we care about decentralization is not, you know, that's the tool. Like, if you could have Bitcoin that had all the same properties, but it wasn't decentralized, then I wouldn't care. That's great. What I care about with Bitcoin is that it protects the rights of the user of the service, which in this case is, let me transact and make sure that there are only 21 million tokens. In our view, it's let me store data and make sure that data is around forever. And no one, no one, not even a DAO, not a company, not a, like a crazy ruler that gets 51% of the hash rate can remove it from the data set later. Um, so so I, I focus less on decentralization, more on preserving the rights of users. I think that so if it's okay to, to rephrase your question, well, are there services that are better if they don't have guarantees for preserving the rights of the users? The only thing that comes to yeah. mind is, well, maybe there's a case where what if you get it wrong as the developer in the first place? Like it's a hyper early stage, like trying to, you know, you can imagine a startup that's pivoting 10 times a minute and, and they're, they're trying to put something out that does something really important. Like, I don't know, in the biology space, like gene editing, something like this. Maybe, maybe there's like a very small niche there where we're being able to, revert on on those user guarantees is a pro-social thing but i think largely no it seems to make sense that if we enter into deals in the world which is what we what we should be doing when we use a web service when we use something on the internet you are entering into an agreement that you're going to use twitter and it's going to make money for them by ad revenue and you're going to get to use the service i don't see why that shouldn't be said in stuff or or the same with your your email account and so on like it strikes me that being transparent and clear about the deals people are getting into upfront is almost universally better. I agree. Yeah. I mean, but I think in some places in the blockchain space, I mean, I've had conversations with quite a few, you know, CEOs are of layer ones and layer twos. And almost unanimously, they say, well, if we had a billion users right now, we would not be able to scale, right? Our blockchains are slow. They uh-huh. uh, get expensive. They get congested. I mean, the Visa network functions around the entire world. It's centralized, but it's fast, right? So, of course, you, you sacrifice the decentralization, all things you talked about. But I guess at this moment in time, centralized, centralized companies often do have some advantages now. So, I think the... Yeah, okay. So, one of the things we spent a lot of time in the bear market working on uh, was how do we make it so that our weave scales arbitrarily at the protocol level? Like the implementations are going to need work in the same way that like a Web2 company as they, they scale, the software itself needs to change. But how do you make sure that you don't end up in an ETH2-like situation? Exactly. Um, and, and the cool thing is we've solved that problem. Like I'm not I'm being objective about this. I, I know the, the, the network in and out. And essentially what we, we've done is by having just one big it's going to be technical for just a moment, but one big Merkle tree. So that there's just one big data set and then one contract, which is the endowment to back it. Um, we, we remove the scalability questions because you're only adjudicating one thing at once. And then you encourage users because of course there is limited, uh, you could say like block negotiation space. So in Bitcoin, that would be one megabyte, you know, da, da, da. Um, yeah, because of that, you, you encourage users to pull their data together so instead of bidding higher to store the same number of bytes, you just say, okay, well, you and I both want to use the network. Let's send our data entries, let's sign them, send them to someone or a, or a decentralized network even, like there's this thing called the Yahweh network called bundler.network uh, without the E, obviously. Is it a, like a roll-up or a zero-knowledge proof? It, it's something kind like of like a similar like an equivalent. arbitrarily scalable roll-up for our right. and And it really is it's pretty neat because it lets you sign your data and pay for your data with like MetaMask and all the different wallets and tokens from all these different blockchain ecosystems. Oh. So you're gonna have like a Solana, you know, Plumber Web app, that kind of thing. It's pretty neat. But, but if you do this, you're incentivized to batch transactions together and then submit them all at once. And you don't get the roll-up scalability issues either because it's 
it's just data. Like there's no contention between like, where, where all of that stems from the smart contract world. And I feel really, I feel sorry for the people that have to work on this, frankly, because it's tough, really tough is, well, if you and I have a transaction, it's going to change the same piece of state. One way or another, that transaction has to be ordered. One of our transactions right. comes before the other. And we can't calculate the other transaction before we calculate the first one. Like that is complicated. You can't really solve that at scale. And that's why you see smart contracts, like as they scale, scare quotes, I'm not sure if your users uh, view your videos or, or listen, but they do. doing this. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, yeah. As they scale, they become more centralized. Well, with Alvi, we just don't have that problem because we're solving an entirely different set of things. So you can fit the whole web in a single Alvi transaction trivially. It's just about having enough hard drives online. Um, so yeah, that, that's one of the most exciting things about say, looking forward to the next 10 years. We're just not going to get into an ETH2 style. Uh, everyone wants to use the service. Now it's broken. Thing. Super, super cool. Very, very exciting. Alvi. Yeah. Absolutely mind blown. Yeah, it's a, it's mind blowing and incredibly impressive. And I hope in ten years uh, we're having this conversation again, uh, and the entire internet is built on our weave. Why not? Or the net, the next, <laughs> the next, the next iteration. So where can people follow you? Obviously, our weave.build, If anybody's interested there, you you talked about that. I want people to definitely check Thanks. that out. Where can people follow you and everything else that's happening with our weave after this conversation? Yeah, so I post on uh, MetaWeave, which is, of course, the Arweave-based Twitter system. <laughs> but you can also find me on, on Twitter at uh, oh God, the worst Twitter handle in the world. The Sam E.C. Williams is the Twitter handle. Could be like, worse. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, anyway, um, that's where you can find me uh, on Twitter. And, and my stuff automatically reposts from MetaWeave, so you can see it there and you can also check it out. Very cool. Well, thank you so so much. I, I really appreciate it. And thank you for giving everyone this, this I, I think, very inspired vision of what the future can look like. Thanks right? for the it's time. Scary, it's fun. scary out there right now. It's scary out there right now. I, they, these, are, these are hard questions that people are very worried about with their, with their data and, and the news. And it, it's, a, it's, it's wonderful to know it can. But the sad truth of the world is crisis is opportunity. Like we are, we are, the world is reforming right now. We have the opportunity to, to push it in a direction that is, is pro-social over time, I think. That's, that's what is at stake and you see it, see it unfolding everywhere. Well, I believe you can do it. So thank you. <laughs> Thanks.